Joining us today on the third episode of The Shift is Stacey Brown-Philpot, former CEO of TaskRabbit and current board member of so many places, including Nordstrom, Noom, StockX, and HP. She possesses more than 15 years of consumer tech experience, leading the growth and scale of large and small enterprises in this digital economy. Not only that, she was named a 2016 Henry Crown Fellow with the Aspen Institute and Fortune's 2015 40 Under 40. Stacey, we are thrilled that you can join us today. Thank you so much for being here and welcome to The Shift. Thank you for having me. Excited for this conversation. So let's jump in. I want to talk about you becoming the first female board member of StockX. So at TaskRabbit, you were the only Black person on the leadership team and board of directors. We've talked about that before, and I've heard your story there, and I think you should tell it again. When you joined Google, it was the same story. And I'm just curious to hear what it's like for you to integrate spaces in the corporate world, and and how is this shaping not only you, but how is it shaping the people around you, and how is it shaping tech? You know, it's been a you look at your life and you're like, why, what am I doing? How am I shaping anything? And all I'm really just doing is living my life. I grew up in an environment where I was taught to make everything around me better. And I just learned that creating better outcomes for other people always made me better as a better person. And so as I enter these environments where I'm the only it's pretty lonely. And the TaskRabbit story is one of them. We were acquired by the world's largest furniture retailer. We got a new board. I was the only Black person on that board. And one of the things that happened was we really set intention, which was the intention to have diversity. And as we built the new board, which was comprised of people who worked from Ikea, we intentionally put a minority on the board. We intentionally put a woman on the board. And the when we did the acquisition with the IKEA team, we shaped that conversation of making sure we had a diverse board. That was the same thing that's happened at StockX. And you know, a lot of people wonder, how do you get on a great board like StockX? How do you get on a, you know, a really interesting company? And who do you have to know? And to some degree, it is about relationships. But it's also about the intention. So Scott Cutler, as the CEO of the company, was very intentional in making sure that they had a diverse board. When he he looked around the table and realized, I've got a bunch of men on this board and we are going to be a multi-billion dollar business someday. All of our money is not going to come from sneakerheads. And it's also all not going to come from men who buy shoes. And they'd already hired a CMO who's an amazing woman who'd grown up in tech. And so adding to the board, another woman was just part of the story of building the kind of business that people all over the world can use. And so I was the first Black woman on the board. And then my friend Robin Washington became the second Black woman on the board. And we both happened to be from Michigan as well, which is where the company was founded. So I think for me, it's been about the intention. It's about going into those spaces and feeling somewhat lonely, but changing the dynamic of what the environment is just simply by by being there. Going into environments and being intentional, can you talk a little bit more about your experience joining Google? One of few Black leaders there, 
formally launched the Black Googler Network. Can you talk just about how you actually formalize and systematize ways for Black employees to support each other there, to grow there? What worked? What didn't work? What would you What would you do differently if you were in that situation now? Please just just share some key insights there. Yeah, it was Google was an amazing company for creating diversity. And when I joined, it was, you know, everybody thinks about Google of today. When I joined, it was a thousand people in the company. It was 2003. We were growing like crazy. And it's often hard for people to create diverse work environments when they're growing really fast. But what I learned is that it really is up to you, the individual. So I'm two years into this company and I look around, Sean, and, and there just aren't a lot of people who look like me. So I, I just decided I was going to do something about that. I first went to Sheryl Sandberg and said, can you help me? Because she created a women at Google initiative. And she said, well, no, because this is about black people. So that I don't meet that criteria and you are the person that we've been waiting for to do this. And so some of the things that we did didn't really work, but they weren't as helpful. So typical on-campus recruiting, not as helpful. It was great. It was important. We certainly did on-campus recruiting. We tried to send diverse people to those meetings. You know, we, we did all those things. What did work was the intention of hiring from HBCUs. So... Google used to have kind of a target list of schools that they would recruit from. And we couldn't go to everybody because we were growing and we our recruiting team wasn't that big. And something that we did with David Drummond, who was the chief legal officer at the time, and on the hiring committee with Larry and Sergey and Eric, was create a, a longer list of schools. And on that list, we put HBCUs on that list. The other thing that we did was we created an internship program called BOLD, where we were intentionally going out and identifying Black, Latinx, underrepresented people, people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, regardless of what you look like, to apply to this program. And by doing that, we over-indexed on that internship program. So I'm bringing up these two points because there's the fun things that you can do. You can do the recruiting, you can have the parties, you can have the social events, but we also looked at the systems, like where in this system is this broken? And let's go and change the system. And those were the big needle movers. So we built an amazing organization called Black Googler Network. We were you know, global by the time I went to go live and work in India for Google. We did a wonderful trip to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and built houses. So we our impact just extended far beyond just the recruiting and the retention efforts of being inside the company, they went into the community. So one, I did not know you you were responsible for pushing Google Bowl because I want to, I'm what, like five, 10 years behind you, you know, career-wise in terms of tech. And I would guess, you know, a third of my peers have either, you know, have referenced Bold in some way. So that's like such an important legacy that you've left there. I'm curious, you mentioned joining in 2003, you mentioned kind of taking the onus upon yourself to to take action. Now you're in boardrooms. Now you're running companies. If you, you know, what would you do? What would you change in an organization? What would you be ensure that you did to ensure that there's more Stacy's kind of leaning in and doing what they did? Like, how do you, how do you create more space? How do you create more uh, of a feeling of I, I can actually drive this type of change, or I can drive, I can lead 
in a way that doesn't take somebody as incredible and special and intrinsically motivated as you to take that on, on themselves? I think there are a number of things. I was, Laszlo Bach was the person who gave me the first few hundred dollars at Google to start the Black Googler Network and our beginning initiatives. So there needs to be a some somebody, a person who will catalyze and ask for the money. Today, we live in a world where we have allies. So it's not just the Latinx person. It's not just the Black person who has to go do all the stuff for themselves. There are a number of people who can go ask those questions. And so if you're wondering what your role can be, if you don't fit a certain group, you can go out there and do it too. So let's get more allies. I also think there's the system side. And you were asking about systems and intention earlier in this conversation. HP sets metrics. We set goals as a board. We look at the company's diversity, equity, and inclusion goals on a regular basis as a board, and we hold the CEO accountable to achieving those goals. And it's often controversial to add those things to the compensation, especially in public companies, but you can do it. You can just tell the CEO and put that down in their comp package that they have to meet these goals. And when you do that, things happen and things change because the next step is around management teams. You cannot be what you cannot see. It just doesn't happen. So when you're thinking about bringing on a diverse management team, be intentional. At TaskRabbit, we had to change recruiters one time in order to just get more women engineers. They said, we couldn't find any. We're like, great, we'll just go find somebody who can. And so we just fired them and hired somebody else. And sure enough, we found female engineers. So really making those decisions about what vendors, what suppliers you work with, don't settle for, oh, it's hard. It is hard. But there are people, there are teams, there are companies that are out there that are doing it. The last couple of things I say on this is what, what else can you do is around decisions. When people are up for promotion, when we are making organizational changes, are we looking at the data from a diverse perspective? Are we making sure that the percentage of women who got promoted is on par with everybody else? Do we understand why it's not? Do we know why a certain manager's culture survey is much stronger than everybody else across every race and ethnicity? What's strong about that individual? I think those questions and being a leader that can ask those questions and hold HR teams accountable to them is really important. So Stacey, I'm really curious because I've heard you talk so much about systems and process. And I wonder what you've been thinking as you've noticed this backlash to ESG. I mean, we had in the news last week, Starbucks is being sued by a conservative think tank over their diversity policies. And there's sort of this growing anti-woke sentiment happening is part of your commitment to embedding, as you're saying, analytics, data, process, systems to protect from such type things that happen in the market, in the ways that people think, in even the sense that we have to justify some of these things as being good for business. I mean, is that part of your, your thought process as you embed these things into the core of the businesses you're running? It's This is a really challenging time right now, Rhea, you are right, because it seems like every week 
there's some topic that comes up that a CEO of a regular company that sells software has to now have an opinion about. And I think that having the systems and the processes help because one, you're not chasing your tails trying to make a decision. When the announcements, first the rumors and then the realities of the Roe versus Wade decisions came out, the companies that I'm on the board of, we already had a rubric for thinking about when events like this happen, what do we do? What is our message internally? What is our message externally? What are the things that we want to be publicly talking about? And what are the things we just want to make sure that our employees understand our point of view around? I think having that, one, just helps the narrative because the company can be as consistent as possible in a crazy world that we live in. But it also helps to deal with controversial people who bring up points around why you might have decided a certain way. Well, here's why we decided. Here are the principles that we live by as a company. Here are the values that we live by as a company. This is what our business does. These are who our customers are. And this is why we do what we do. And I think for a lot of people, that helps using the systems, using the data, using the process, and having those first principles to talk about helps deal with some of the sort of critical conversations that I think are coming up, especially in public. I have always found that many of these discussions, when they happen inside the company, they are much better and much better handled than when it's external. When we, when George Floyd was murdered, we had some very crucial conversations inside of TaskRabbit that were just the most wonderful things that could have come from such a horrible tragedy. But when you write about things in the press, that's what makes it complicated. And so any CEO or public company spokesperson or any spokesperson should have some kind of values and principles behind those systems and the data to be able to talk about and counteract the challenges that will come. What else do you have on on TaskRabbit and Google? Because I'm about to switch to investing. And before I do that, I want you to I want to get our equity important questions in. I think the last question I have along the lines of system process and how do we create more Stacy's? Where did this come from, Stacy? Like what in your upbringing in your childhood in you have this incredible resilience and determination for change, but not just change in sort of the esoteric sense, but change in I'm going to build this in and make it a part of the organization that cannot be pulled out. Where does that come from? It it's I was born in Detroit. I was raised by, you know, at, at one point there were four generations of women in the house including me. So several strong, you know, independent black women who never really took no for an answer. They always found a way. And growing up in that kind of environment, I learned there there's always a way. And I also was taught how to treat people well. And when you do that, good things happen to you too. And that's just based on my Christian faith. And people don't always talk about where those things come from, but that's where it comes from. When good things happen to other people, that spills over into me. And so when we're in an environment like a company and we were selling Ikea, selling TaskRabbit to Ikea, it was a wonderful experience. That's one of those good changes that happens. It's really positive. But everybody was afraid that we were going to like lose our values and lose who we were. And what about our identity? 
And IKEA has a very strong set of values as a company that I greatly respect. So we did an exercise right after the acquisition where we redid our values. And we it wasn't because we didn't like the ones that already existed. It was because we were entering a new era. And I said, this is a good time to just restart and just rethink. Do we, what do we want to change? What do we want to be for this next chapter in the company? And we ended up changing three of the four and keeping one. And that whole exercise not only bonded the company to say, this is TaskRabbit, this is our new era, but it also brought the IKEA team in, into it too, where they could now buy in and accept what we want it to become and support that journey. So I just go in and I see opportunities to ground ourselves in what we believe in. I love that. The values of a company and the fact that you reformatted them knowing that going into a period of merging two cultures was going to be a big deal and and defining that. I think the last question I have on, on the operational side before we move to some of the investing is how do you take the operational leadership perspective and now apply that from your seats on various boards? What types of questions do you ask to uncover whether the leadership teams at the companies in which you're engaged, how they're thinking about this and are they creating systems or are they just paying lip service to things as important as representation and diversity? I have the pleasure of having wonderful CEOs that I get to work with and I can pretty much ask them anything. In addition to just reviewing the metrics on a regular basis, I just ask the question, as you know, some companies have done layoffs. They are hired, doing hiring freezes. I ask the question, are we making sure if we're doing these things, are we laying off more people that are brown than are not? <laughs> and, and that's the question that comes up. We had you know, a situation at Nordstrom a few years ago where a couple of Black kids were unfortunately racially profiled and in the store and it was wrong and it was terrible. And I had a conversation with Eric Nordstrom about what to do. He called me and said, hey, what should we do? Well, we got to go to their parents' house and apologize. You have to go because that is a situation where, you, you don't know all of the history of what might have led to that event, but it happened under the watch of your company. And so this is where the conversations go. They go wherever they need to go to root out the systemic issues that are there. Or when we have processes in place and they get violated or they're broken, the change that can come from them. That's awesome. Thank you. That's beyond awesome. As somebody who's been profiled in... Uh in department stores for, for almost 40 years to have somebody advising and coaching a CEO or, or a founder through that to go and actually apologize. Like, I can't imagine that. That's not, I mean, how many people in this country would call you a liar <laughs> telling that story? Like just, it's beyond comprehension. That's amazing. I'm processing that in, in real time here. The thing that, um, that I love that you said is you, you went back to, to kind of understanding who you are. And I think that, that, that self-confidence and that self-awareness allows you to be so courageous in doing the right thing without hesitation. You're doing something new now, newish, I guess, since it's, we're, we're almost two years in now. But talk about what you're doing with, with the Opportunity Fund. Talk about the, you know, you're 100 million in, I think at this point, investing in, 
and Black and Latino founders. I'm going to assume that listeners of this podcast are aware of the racial funding gap and do a quick Google search to learn that because I'd much rather have you kind of talk about the work that you're doing to support uh, underrepresented founders and then also just what you're learning and what you're seeing, what you're excited about moving forward when it comes to the Opportunity Fund. It was a project that has become way more than a 24-hour project. We launched the SoftBank Opportunity Fund in June of 2020. And we started with $100 million, a couple of friends from my Henry Crown class. And it was in response to George Floyd being murdered and what we can do. And Marcelo was at SoftBank at the time, got $100 million to go and invest in Black, Latinx, and Native American founders. We didn't know what was going to happen. We knew we had more capital than most, than pretty much any other investor investing in that population at that time. Today, there are many more, which is very exciting, which I'm very proud of. But at the time, we didn't know what we were going to see. We've seen over 2,000 companies, Sean. We have invested in over 75 companies. We've exceeded the $100 million and are now on to the next round of funding because it's an evergreen fund. And we've invested across all sectors in tech. We've invested in enterprise companies. We have some things in crypto that we hope will come back in value someday. And we have we have consumer companies. We have healthcare. We have everything in tech. And because of that, it really proves, A, there's no pipeline problem. B, there's no specific sector that is better or worse for a diverse founder to start a company. What happens or what's happening and still happening is that these founders are overlooked because they don't fit the profile of what a typical founder looks like. And that's created an opportunity for us to not only make money for the fund, but also change the face of wealth creation for these founders, the companies, and the communities that they impact. And what what we're seeing now is there's a number of sub $100 million funds that are led by diverse fund managers where people are trying to close the funding gap at the seed and series A stage, but we need more capital to flow at the earlier stages. We need larger funds at the series A and the growth stage because that gap doesn't only exist in the investment cycle at the very beginning. That systemic gap exists throughout the entire history of the company. So we were talking about HP and the $60 billion company that they are and the things we're doing from that board. Well, how do you become an HP? All along that journey, we have to break down some of these barriers, break down some of these systems, and especially figure out how to make sure the dollars of funding can flow to diverse founders as their businesses continue to grow. So it's been fun. I love meeting entrepreneurs. I, I don't have any favorites. I just love them all. So <laughs> They love meeting you. And they definitely, I mean, the, the amount of times I've been on a call with the early stage founder who has said that you are advising them or has helped them in some way, it's pretty incredible how quickly you just kind of dove in and uh, the impact that you're having in the early stage uh, world already. Thank you. I, I, I do want to say something about that because I think I can't help everybody. I can't talk to everybody. I try to do as many conversations as I can. But if more operating executives like me 
look like me? Have a conversation with the founder. There was one who got on. We were going to have a conversation about like building your best board ever. And I could tell something was going on. And I said, hey, what, what's going on? And this founder just unleashed on all the stresses of what it's like to build a company. And on top of that, being African-American and building a company, it's very few people that you can have that discussion with and walk away feeling a whole lot lighter and a whole lot more capable of going out and acquiring that new customer and taking care of that business issue that you want to take care of. And so that's why I'm a big advocate for having more diverse fund managers, because they can have those conversations and help those founders through those difficult times. And Stacey, I'm curious, is is there one area or a few areas over others where you find the entrepreneurs and founders you're working with are are struggling or need information or need guidance or or have a gap in in something that your help to close that knowledge gap is is helping to propel them in addition to just the introduction of networks and things like that? I think it's all equal. <laughs> this is a place where equity is true. It is hard to build a company no matter who you are. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> equal. But I would say the one thing that I've noticed is around just scale, going from being a seed stage founder to being a growing company founder. And now you're building your team and you're giving away responsibility and you're trusting other people and you're trying to find the best talent to do that. That's a really important stage for the company. And you have been through it. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And for a lot of founders that we work with, that transition is a very difficult transition because they may not have the networks or they may not have the experience set around them for how to do that well. And so I try to talk to them about scale and leverage and the importance of both of those things, even at the earlier stages. When you're a few million dollars, scale and leverage matters when as much as when you're a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, because you're never going to get to a hundred if you don't create leverage through through scale. Yeah. I mean, that speaks to me for sure. So I I think the work that you're doing there is so critical because you're bringing folks along and you're helping them see from the seat of an operator what's ahead. And I think looking around corners is one of the key parts of being a good entrepreneur. And you know, obviously, if you've never done it before, you don't have the benefit of the knowledge of of what you've experienced in the past. So it really all is future seeking. So that's that's incredibly helpful. What's your favorite part about working with entrepreneurs? I love diving into a problem or a challenge. It is really fun to basically help people skip steps. I've made so many mistakes in my career. And so I'll get on. I was on with a couple of founders last week and they were worried about growing too fast. And if they grew too fast, then, you know, they wouldn't be able to handle the growth. And I said, you know, revenue solves all known problems. Doesn't matter. It, whatever, <laughs> whatever problem you have, if you have revenue, it will get solved. And I think it's just this sort of realization that yeah, we can grow, we can grow faster. It's okay. And so just skipping some steps of trying to be too conservative because you're not, you're worried you're going to run out of money. Don't worry about that. Like revenue will solve that problem. Go out, 
get the customers, get the revenue, and then the team will come, the investors will come, and it will happen. So just picking one little problem and just drawing on mistakes I made, thoughts that I had that were ultimately the wrong thoughts when I was growing up as an executive and sharing that feedback. So hopefully somebody else doesn't make that same mistake. And then the really nice piece is I don't always get a thank you or letter or a note, and I don't care. It doesn't bother me that much. What what I do appreciate is sometimes people will give me feedback like months or years later. There's a founder that we had a call with uh, three weeks ago, and he said, you know, when you met with me, when you were still at TaskRabbit and you talked about community, it was so important to me. And this is how we built our company. And this is why we now raise this amount of money and have this valuation. And I said, I never thanked you for that. It's like, but I kept that information. And when we decided to start my company, I drew upon that to sort of decide how I was going to build this marketplace. And that made me so happy because it wasn't just about like taking notes in the moment. It was years later that this impacted someone's decision and I was glad that it was a good use of time for both of us and and happy for him too. All right. So Stacy, I'm going to just start a running Google doc and I'll just do like an annual thank you for things that you're telling me during all of our conversations. Cause I don't, I don't I'm, we, we can wait years if we want, but we can do it in real time too. Cause I get so much from every conversation we have. Can I ask a, a provocative, more provocative question? You talked about mistakes, you know, avoid helping folks avoid mistakes that you made as a growing executive. What are mistakes that folks make in, make interacting with you today? What's something that you'd want people to know to help help them avoid uh, kind of that that mistake? If that question makes sense. Yeah, I, I'll give two answers. One is for mentors, people who want mentorship. I think the the biggest mistake they make is not being specific. And I would assume our first conversation is our last. I don't know if we'll ever see each other again or talk to each other again. So just be specific. What is it? What exactly is it that you want to know? And tell me and ask me that question. Sometimes they're so general. And then we leave with like the last three minutes. And so, by the way, I really want to join a board. I was like, wait, we just spent 27 minutes on this other topic. And you really just want to join a board that we could have spent 27 minutes talking about how to join a board, for example. I think for founders, and this goes back to a little bit of what Maria was asking about what, what is different, having a story, bringing your story, telling a good story about your idea. I'm all in. I love that you're diverse. I love that you've got this idea. I am already there. I need to hear that this is a good business idea and have your pitch ready to go. Give me the three or four minutes. Don't assume that I've read the deck and know everything. If, as you know, Sean, we don't always have time to read the decks before these meetings. Okay, <laughs> so have your story, practice it, and give Noted. me the pitch. I'm here, you know, <laughs> he does for board meetings, though. He's prepared for every board meeting. Just so you, know. yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen that in action. He does the pre-read. Great advice. So Stacy, when you were the CEO of TaskRabbit having to navigate really tough internal conversations when you may or may not have known how people were leaning inside your organization, how how did you do that? How did you come to the table being your full self 
and not putting any of your own personal passions and mission and commitment aside while still leading a company. Can you tell us any stories or examples around that? Yeah, we we were we've always been a company that prioritized diversity. So when George Floyd was murdered, it wasn't a oh my goodness moment for us because we could have those conversations inside the company. But it was different. It was different. And what what happened is we started the process of having discussions and we had just the black people and then we had everybody and everybody was sort of releasing a lot of stress and a lot of emotion. And there was a comment that came up about, well, if we're all sort of rallying around black people right now, you know, what about these other groups? What about Asian Americans? Because of course, you know, lots of people were blaming them for COVID and a variety of things that was unfair. And my response was, it's not your turn. It's our turn. And when it is your turn, we're going to show up for you if you show up for us. And there was like, that's going to be awkward. That's an awkward thing to say. And it's going to feel awkward, but that's the truth. And so some people responded very positively to that because sure enough, as you remember, there were a number of hate incidents towards Asian people that sort of started to happen towards the end of 2020 that, you know, the increase in 2021. And of course we showed up, we were there because they were there. And so sometimes having those awkward things, and this is going to be awkward, but this is what we're going to do is how I did it. Awesome. Stacey, thank you so much. What a wonderful episode. And we could not be more thrilled that you spent time with us today. We know you're super busy and we appreciate every minute. And we know that the folks listening to this do too. Thank you. You're the best. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Shift. And a special thank you to our guest, Stacey Brown-Philpott for joining us. We'll see you next time as we continue to explore how companies, leaders, and employees are tackling inequity in the workplace. Make sure to tune in on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.